I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. I think for most of us, practice is something that we do to feel a little happier, to have a life that works a little better, that probably not too many of us, even myself anymore, are focused on getting enlightened. Or maybe. Who in the room is working toward enlightenment this week? Okay. <laughs> a few a few semi-hand raises there. There are these different paths to spiritual awakening. One of them is yoga, where you work with controlling your life, what, how you breathe, how you move your body, how you eat what goes in your mouth, what goes out of your mouth, what kind of sexuality you have or you don't have. And the notion is that by deepening awareness of uh, through this process of purification, one eventually begins to eliminate and replace obstacles such as anger and greed and lust with more wholesome qualities. The traditional yogic path is a, a, essentially a path of renunciation. It's very difficult to be a yogi living in 21st century Northern California. Uh, if you have a job, if you have a family, if you're out and about, there's so much distraction, there's so much input. There are pressures that, that yogis don't have when they're alone in a cave or in an ashram or something. The path of Tantra is a, a, a quicker path, and of course, we like quick when it comes to feeling better. We've even talked about how in our tantric three-step dance, that the first step is just being aware of things, and that we can, and that that has been shown by scientists at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, among other places, that awareness will lead to greater well-being. You sleep better, you have more friends, 
you're happier in some kind of obvious ways. And that by adding compassion to the path, now you've got two things to do. It's twice as complicated, but it's also a lot quicker, they found out. It's, it's one comes to a sense of well-being more directly, more quickly, if you're not just being aware of things, but you're cultivating compassion for the places in yourself and in those that you interact with or see out in the world, bringing compassion to the suffering that is arising. And the Dalai Lama famously said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. That's sort of the obvious part of the quote. And the second part is, if you want to be happy, practice compassion. So that if we look at what's going on politically or environmentally or economically or in our personal lives, but particularly out there in the world, as long as we're busy reacting and getting upset about things rather than feeling compassion for the suffering that we see around us, it tends to keep the mind active. It keeps the mind busy. We're juggling our experiences to see whether this will be an experience that brings us happiness or if it doesn't bring us happiness. So what I was saying is that Tantra is a much more direct path, much quicker path than the path of yoga, the path of cultivating awareness, cultivating compassion, but that it is traditionally not taught until we have cultivated enough awareness and compassion to dive into Tantra because Tantra can be almost dangerous because it at times reveals such great pleasure in one's life that one can get caught in the, in the pleasure of Tantra. So usually in the West, the traditional explanation of Tantra or the traditional notion of Tantra is sexual Tantra, which is only just one very small part of what Tantra is about. And Tantra is really much more about being able to see the presence in what is arising. Or on the other hand, that you are the deity who is experiencing uh, from either, either side there. It kind of is two sides of the same coin. There are all kinds of practices. We've, we've talked about some of them. One of them is not really naming your experience, but when a sensory experience arises, you just are with the initial arising without saying that's my knee or that feels good. You're just with what's happening moment to moment in a very awake way. Another is beginning to experience a sense of grace or aliveness in each moment. So that really we're going from the practice of being aware of the content of our experience to paying more attention to our relationship with the content of our experience with compassion. Whereas in Tantra, it's more we're being with the nature of experience. So that whether it's feeling great or having cancer or winning the gold medal or the silver medal or the no medal or winning the, the, uh, the court case or losing it, that even though we have preferences and even though emotions arise, the preferences and the emotions and the sensory experience are all equally of that taste. I've been playing with the possibility of doing this in a more moment-to-moment -moment way. I mean, in the past, for instance, Maharaji would say things like, 
the best form to worship God is every form. So that it's not like I'm worshiping Hanuman, but there is you and there's you and there's you and there's me and we're all we're all a face of God. Mother Teresa talks about seeing Christ in his distressing disguise when she picks a leper out of the gutter in Calcutta. But what I've been playing with a bit this week is gratitude, partly because I've been thinking some about Paul, who's I'm sure grateful for what happened to him. But can I was playing with, could I make gratitude a more moment-to-moment practice? Not like that gratitude journal at the end of the day, you sit down and you write down three things you're grateful for. Kind of like Diane's favorite of taking in the good, where something good is happening and you extend it, you amplify it for 20 seconds, 15 seconds, and it goes into the permanent part of the neurology instead of just going Tefloning right through. Is it possible that we can use gratitude as a way of uh, grounding us in the present as sort of a confidence in life itself, a confidence in the divine nature of reality, a confidence in God if you're a theistic kind of person? My, my first guru, Bob Dylan, who I think is much better than the Beatles, uh, said, he who is not being born is busy dying. In this moment, I'm saying some things. Hopefully, they're fairly interesting. The mind is taking them in and kind of questioning, is, can I use this? What's he talking about? So there, there are sensory experiences of hearing. Your body is breathing. Thoughts are rising. If we have been grounded in awareness and compassion, if the heart is relatively open, there's not a lot of judgment going on, is there then some kind of sense of just gratitude for the quality of things, for the nature of things? You're appreciating that beyond the content, beyond like and dislike, good and bad, fame, shame, loss, gain, pleasure, pain, all those differences, that there is this this aliveness, there is this life, there's awakeness, there's presence that one can be grateful for in each moment. What we're kind of doing here is taking a step back from what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, in that before we were talking about can we be aware of that awakeness, which is a very subtle thing. It's actually a non-thing, if you will. It's more awareness being aware of itself in a certain kind of way, the aliveness that sense of awareness touching each experience but as a as a as a, a tantric technique here can we be resting in this sense of there's a, a flow of gratitude for what we're experiencing so as children we learn that acceptance has to be earned we believe the only way to be good is punishing ourselves for being bad And eventually, though, we begin to see that what we're seeking is already inside of ourselves. Consequently, what we're talking about here tonight is really going against a lot of our childhood conditioning, that we have to be better people, that if you don't behave in a certain way, you're not a good person, if you're not helping people, if you're not doing this or that. So like in Tantra, once again, whiskey is just as much God as chamomile tea. Sex is just as much God as celibacy. We're 
going beyond all this judgment and seeing it all as a manifestation of the one reality in Hindu Tantra, it's all seen as a manifestation of the mother. And I've talked about before this poem by Ram Prasad Sen, the Bengali poet, where he was a great devotee of Kali, the dark mother. And he said, in this life, either you will devour me or I, I will devour you. And it is you that I vow to de devour. And what he means by that is when we're lost in our experience, then we're being devoured by the mother. When we're caught in our thoughts, when we're caught in reactivity, then the mother, then form is devouring us. But when we're awake in this way that we're talking about now, then we're devouring the mother. And I really love that image of devouring, devouring the chocolate on the table, devouring the glass that went flag all over the place before we began the group. A few of the teachers I studied with a long time ago, one of them said, be peaceful, I am everywhere. Another one said, I'm always in communion with you. Clearly, once again, this is kind of a more theistic view of things, but these were two people who seemed to be completely awakened and they were identified with this quality that we're talking about. So when, when Maharaji said, I'm always in communion with you, it's not necessarily like he's in the room here behind me taking care of me. Maybe he's doing that too, but I don't think that's what he meant. That, that quality of awakeness, that Christ consciousness, Buddha nature, is always in communion with us. And we can, we can begin to go beyond what I find a bit of the drudgery of working with awareness and compassion in a very busy life and begin to find some of the juiciness, some of the aliveness, some of the awakeness that is there that to me brings a, an intimate relationship with my experience. It's like having a love relationship not with another person, but with what's going on in your life. And I think we've all experienced this at various times. I know somebody there who's a bike rider, I won't mention her name because we're taping it, talked about certain times of being on the bike and the wind in the face and working the muscles and everything was just so awake. We've all had that. We've all had that during meditation or during exercise or being in nature or listening to music. And I'm suggesting that it's my guess here that everybody in the room has had enough of those experiences and has practiced enough that we can start making this bit of a leap. We can see what the next step is. Instead of, I've got to be aware of everything all the time, that we're, we're bringing in love. We're bringing in this relationship with something that is not particularly solid, but is inherent in each moment. One of the things we did before, and we can play with that right now, is there's a lot of nerve endings in your hands. So right now, can you be aware of the sensations in your right hand? You don't have to move your hand, but you can just feel your hand. Maybe it's in your lap, maybe it's not. And can you extend that to feeling the sensations in your right arm? The tingling, temperature changing sensations, pressure, clothing. And then with the left hand, feeling your left hand. 
and the sensations in your left arm. And then is it possible to use this awareness of sensation as the gateway into awareness of presence? Can you be with these sensations as a way of tuning you into the aliveness that is in each moment? Right now, we're just using the sensations in our body. Can there be a deeply loving, intimate, tender relationship with something that is not changing, something that is not dependent on the content, using sensation only as a gateway. And even then consider the inquiry of investigating why certain things distract you from this openness and this presence. I will certainly admit that it's harder to do this when you're typing away on the computer or when you're in a traffic jam. But in truth, inherent in all experience is this quality. So that we begin to cultivate unawareness of it in more quiet, supportive environments like this one. But possibly the next time there is a difficult moment, an extreme moment, is it possible to go directly to this awakeness rather than what does it feel like? I should be aware of this. Can I have compassion for what I'm experiencing right now? Maybe I should get grounded and centered, become embodied. Those certainly are all healing, productive things to do. But they really are still dualistic preparatory stages for this resting in this relationship with reality. We're all addicted. Addiction is really a spiritual issue. Addicted to how we use our minds, how we use our bodies. I'm not an expert in the 12 steps, but what little I know is that eventually the 12 steps bring us to this place through very skillful psychological work brings brings us to the spiritual place, this relationship with the higher power. So think how relaxing, what ease there would be in your life if we begin to have the sense that the best form to worship God is every form. Each moment is potentially a worshipful moment. It doesn't in any sense imply that we can't protest or analyze or do the things that we need, but doing them in the context of this non-practice. The quote I read a couple of weeks ago, which is in four words that is 
a whole practice in itself. Openness equals doing emptiness. <laughs> Openness equals doing emptiness. So by emptiness, we mean, we mean there's not a self. As long as there's a self who's saying, oh, I'm experiencing God, then that it's really pretty much a concept. And this openness that we're, we're hopefully have been experiencing during some of this, this guided practice is the doing of emptiness, bringing emptiness into activity, bringing emptiness into the movement of life. What I'm saying is that Tantra is a path like yoga is a path. And Tantra is a path that's difficult to follow without a teacher because it is easy to get lost in such notions as if you're going to be a whore, be the best whore. If you're being a dancer, be the best dancer. You can use those kind of instructions as an excuse to do whatever you want and say, oh, it's all God, it's all presence, so I can do whatever the heck I want. and. I would suggest that there are any number of teachers out there who have some degree of realization and they're going around saying, we're all, in fact, there was a teacher in India, I won't mention his name, but he said to all the students that came, including several of my friends, you're all enlightened, it's all God. And they came back and said, I'm enlightened, I'm your teacher. And a lot of people said, yes, sign me up. <laughs> and in some absolute sense, we all are enlightened. But in the sense of manifestation, the sense of, are we still suffering? Even though uh, that is coming from an illusion, it still hurts. At least for the time being, what we're talking about can be an adjunct practice, that it requires a foundation in awareness, it requires a foundation in an open heart, and at times to rest in this openness, to rest in this quality of presence is so healing and so rewarding and so, maybe rewarding isn't quite the right word. It's so, it's so nourishing in a certain way. And what, did I, what I was even suggesting earlier tonight was the possibility of using gratitude as opposed to the thing with the sensations, using gratitude as sort of a, a gateway into the sense of presence. So that right now, can there be an open-hearted gratitude for this moment, whatever the moment is, as a way of going beyond, I've got to do better, or I'm not a very good yogi, or I'm a really good yogi, or I should have more compassion for, for Donald Trump, or whatever you're feeling just have gratitude for this moment. I had a conversation with our friend here over the weekend, and I said that I'll bet he'll be a much better therapist because of what he had to go through. That the, the, the depth of suffering he had to go through was part of the, the tantric path. So that, that, in Tantra, it's it's almost mandatory that we also honor the, the dark god, the dark goddess, Kali and Shiva and Mahakala and these these wrathful deities that have swords and blood and severed limbs and things. And what's being destroyed is the attachment 
that keeps us from resting in this presence. But can we even have this loving devotional relationship with the bloody part of the mother as well as the nourishing part of the mother? And it's said in in, uh, Hinduism that if you love Kali, if you really love her, and she's the most wrathful of all of the goddesses, she will reveal her beautiful inner form. 